Some of society's most important innovators and influencers are artists. Art can influence others by showing opinions, translating experiences, and even affecting the fundamental sense of self. It can be a vessel for social change or a political statement. It can be a drawing, a sentence, or even a delicate piece of fabric on a wall. The point being, art is a very powerful tool of expression. On today's episode, artist, advocate, and entrepreneur Paula Crown reflects with artist-in-residence Edmund Duvall on his work. The residency is a part of the Aspen Institute Arts Program. Paula Crown brings a unique lens to the conversation as an artist herself. Edmund Duvall is best known for his large-scale installations of porcelain vessels, often created in response to collections and archives or the history of a particular place. From the Aspen Institute, I'm Amina Akhtar. This is Aspen Insight. To fully understand the context of the conversation, it's important to know Edmund Duvall's major 2019 work called The Library of Exile. It took place in the 500-year-old Jewish ghetto in Venice to coincide with the opening of the 58th Biennale Art Exhibition. History is a huge part of Duvall's work and is required to understand the nuances of some of his unique installations. For the Library of Exile, we go back to 1516, where authorities in Venice, Italy, ruled that Jews have to live separately from Christians. When Napoleon conquered Venice in 1797, over 200 years later, the Jewish population was finally granted freedom. Duvall created the installation as a space to sit and read and be. The more than 2,000 books in the Library of Exile are written by those who have been forced to leave their own country or exiled within it. Paula Crown and Edmund Duvall sat down to speak about Duvall's work after being on stage to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Bauhaus art. Take a listen to the fascinating conversation. Edmund, it's so wonderful to be here to continue our conversation from yesterday, celebrating the Bauhaus's 100th anniversary and what we all continue to learn. It's referred to as a birth of modernism, but I really think about its contemporary principles that we've talked about apply to our own practices. I'm thrilled to continue. We, we, I feel like we were sort of halfway through when we had to stop, so it's lovely to be able to extend and deepen these conversations. So could we talk a little bit about your studio practice? And we know we don't have typical days with our lives, but I find that I'm intentional about getting in the studio around 8 o'clock in the morning and not taking in calls, emails, and even my team knows that they can't have at me until one o'clock. Yes. How do you handle the distractions? I mean, the, the touch, watching you make pottery is such an present task, right? You, you yes. can't be anywhere else. It's, it's yeah. like yeah. What, when I'm, I'm writing or drawing, you, you can't be any, anywhere else. How Thank do you think God. about that? Thank God. I mean, that's, that's the thing. You know, you, if, you're, if, you're not, if I'm not there with clay, there is no, there is no work can't talk my way into, into, into yes, my practice. Yes, you can. <laughs> Your gift of language and communication is musical. But it's a similar thing, which is, you know, get in as early as you can. And, again, my team, terrific about not, not getting, getting, I love your phrase, getting at you, and getting at me for several hours. But 
I'm finding that the world does find its ways of getting to you. What does the what is music? What what role does that play in your practice or getting into flow, which is such a um, it's truly a, a glorious place mm. to be. Agnes Martin talked mm. about that the most important thing is to find rest, and and what she meant by that was to be in this purely natural state of flow and concentration and focus. It's it's so joyous. It is joyous. And actually, my, uh, my other hero, apart from Agnes Martin, is Annie Alberts, who talks about that moment. And she talks about it as being it's the event of a thread, you know, so that, that which is wonderful, so that the 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 moment of being is is an event mm -hmm. it's 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 a moment of being purely present in what you're doing and of course you know one of the kind of ways i find really helpful is is to be having music happening as i do it as i as i make because if i'm listening deeply to this music then somehow in some bizarre liberated way bodily my hands find that they're they're making making the work more fluently, more intuitively. Um, do you listen? I, I, do you know we haven't talked about music? How mm -hmm. do you do? You have music in the studio? I, I do, and it can vary. I don't play an instrument. I wish I could sing. I can't even hum, but very much um, have um, immersed in in music through lyric opera and my activities mm -hmm. here with the Aspen Music Festival in school, I am sometimes indiscriminate in that I will select things that will get myself going, get myself moving, dancing, freeing, if, I, if I'm trying to solve a problem. Mm. Uh, but my default would be going to Bach or Mozart or Beethoven. It varies. I, I think of myself, you know, my patterns can be very bursty, and so I may get totally engaged and lost in the soundtrack from Hamilton, and then yes. I'm listening to David Bowie, and then I'm listening to Vivaldi. It's a mess of a um, musical playlist, but I'm just so happy. I think we should put up, I think we should have your playlist attached <laughs> to the. Um, I have my hiking playlist, which. Um, Do you? Uh, I'd I, share I, that. That would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be happy to. But there is all this data that shows, and if you listen yeah. to things with certain beats, it does. Yes. Yeah. Get your heart rate up. So let's talk about your installation in Venice. Neither one of us were accepted yes. as collateral programs, mm. the biennial, which which I thought was um, uh, just to be noted, um, yes. and the fact that both of our mm. ex exhibitions were in Canareggio. Yes. Talk about why you still wanted to manifest it. Well, for me, it's in, and for me, I, that particular area of Venice, I'm, I'm working in the ghetto, in the Jewish ghetto, in the, in fact, in these spaces around one of the synagogues in the Jewish Museum, um, have such a level of, um, Power, a sort of powerful pulse, really, of of history, of, of all this um, life and vigor and storytelling. But in particular, it was a place of languages, um, because the ghetto 
was the place, obviously, of enforced separation for the Jewish community, but it's also the place where all this, the Jews from all the way around Europe um, and Levant and, and North Africa came. So you had multiple languages. So it was a place of dialogue, which is such an extraordinary thing. And so obviously it's thought of as a place of, sort of, of melancholy and of separation. Um, but for me, there was another history there which I really wanted to sort of celebrate and investigate and be part of, which was this vigorous community of, from all the way around the world sharing a space and sharing stories and, uh, and generating song, poetry, uh, architecture, liturgy, printing, all this stuff going on. So it's a celebratory exhibition uh, in the ghetto, which sounds kind of bizarre, but that's entirely what it is. And it takes, it takes the word psalm as its title um, because the psalms are, are songs of exile. So they're this great celebration of being in one place but knowing there's somewhere else that matters to you as well. And so how did you approach the art making, the um, particular forms, the punctuation throughout the space, which is is just so poetic and impactful. I've seen just in photographs. Well, similarly to you, where any exhibition or any is any intervention has to be a journey through a space. You know, I think we share this entirely about our exhibition making, our art making. That you know, you really want people to to move through spaces. It's not about a single a single look it's but it's, it's sort of anti instagram it's and the, <laughs> exactly. you know it's anti the the single the single take mm -hmm. it's about going in going through going round finding things that you didn't see and also changing lights you know how so trying to be in a place and be true to true to it not over, not 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 make the conditions of it antiseptic and and um sort of cinematically lit but 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 more open to 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 the irregularity and rhythms of the day so how did this come about did you walk through the space or yeah, did so you have simple. pieces so it's so simple i just kept walking through the space mm -hmm. up this beautiful stone staircase past these memorial tablets to various Jewish donors from the 17th, 18th century, you know, up into the spaces outside the synagogue, uh, waiting spaces in, and then further up, up these staircases, looking down into the canal, and then up into this, the women's gallery and the sukkah, this beautiful mm -hmm. top space where celebration, celebration space. Celebra celebration space. Mm -hmm. So, and then where you can look, finally look down into the campus. So it was, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of journey, you know, and a, a, genuinely a, a journey up through all these different spaces and, and moments on the way of pause and reflection. So some spaces which are empty, some places where you can sit down, um, some places which have a window open, some places which were a little darker. Um, and um, I kind of loved it, you know. I mean, it's, it's a real... Interestingly enough, although they'd never done anything contemporary, there in the 
any in the um, Jewish Museum. So it was so, and this is something I think we share. So in fact, actually, the conversations were very extended. You know, to make sure that the community was happy um, with me using these spaces, and then to to check in with them about whether or not this was. Um, not whether it was appropriate, but whether or not they were happy that I was experimenting with their spaces, training, borrowing their spaces. And did you feel free with that? Yeah, I felt, felt, felt free with that. So, yeah. So, um, <laughs> but just hearing you walk through the space, I think about our conversation yesterday where we talk about where things start, where mm. we begin. And for me, it's, it's the intense looking and then the mark making <clears throat> with paper and pen or pencil. Uh, it, it's the taking in of the information through my body. And um, it was just so beautiful to hear you describe how not only are you making the pieces, the vessels, but then you're weaving that into a physical space as it relates to your body yes i mean and perhaps we should talk about vitrines because you know we, we both the way way we work is intensely in terms of beginnings to do with the hand and the mm -hmm. body in terms of mark making in terms of understanding of the sort of of scale and format and, and texture and materiality. And then, as you pointed out earlier, <laughs> my work seems to be behind glass and not and not touchable anymore. Um, and does that talk about that intentionality or why you think that is the most constructive way or the most personal way to manifest a work? I, I was really touched by the change in the point of view with people being underneath and viewing mm. up. Yes, I love the tactility of pots. I mean, I adore it. I kind of, they're, they're vessels work and in the hand uh, breathe for me. I mean, so to put them slightly further away so that they're sort of paused in the world behind glass is in some ways it's a moment for me which is kind of like writing poetry. It's a sort of placing something slightly fur further away so that you there's just this bit of air between you and the object which gives you a sort of sort of I, I weirdly enough I think it gives you more intimacy with the object than picking it up uh, um, because it, it, it sort of it sits there in the world and it's going to continue to be in the world just for that moment, just for as long as the vitrine exists. So it's sort of, I, it's, I've got a strange relationship with this moment of putting something down and then just letting it be slightly further away from my hands so that I can let it go in the world. And how did this relate to seeing the Natsuki in, in the vitrines of your uncle? <laughs> did that was that a theme that you consciously or unconsciously it was so on? unconscious it was completely completely not planned um though curiously enough when i was finishing writing the book about my family 
at the same time, I was just finishing a huge work in the Victorian Albert Museum, which is a big red piece that high up in the dome. And, of, and I kind of, that was the first time I'd ever put work just out of reach. In this case, it's 70 feet out of reach of the hand. <laughs> you can't change it around. So perhaps I think writing that book over those seven years did lead me to, to, to put work out of reach, slightly out of reach. How do you see your practice at the moment balanced between the urgent, the immediate, fabulous exhibitions, uh, Royal Ballet at Covent Garden, and the questions that you want to investigate? Pause. I've just this last year, finding this new way of mark-making and writing. And it's really interesting because there was this very beautiful strange writer, Robert Walser, who was a Swiss-German writer, and he wrote that his hand gave up on him. He couldn't write anymore with a pen that cramped him. And he felt it was he'd had, extraordinary phrase, a breakdown in his hand. And in order to reconnect with writing, he picked up a pencil he hadn't done since childhood and he discovered that he could he loved writing as soon as he picked up the pencil this allowed him to reconnect with words and communication and text beautiful mm-hmm. and he developed this very extraordinary minute mark making you'd love it send you the books as soon as i can micro scripts tiny things short stories written on bus tickets and scraps of paper and bits of calendar and this this idea of of a personal writing which is what i've done in like on the walls of the library of venice and i've now started doing into porcelain is really exciting me actually it's really really exciting me because it's it feels like i've put my pen down which is my formal public Publisher, publishable <laughs> me, you know, the communicating stuff. And actually just exploring something in a really intimate way. And I, which is, I don't know where it's going. I'm really excited and I want to push, I want to keep the door closed to, to the, all the other stuff and just, just do this and see where it goes. It's very, I'm really excited. It's a, it's a wonderful. So I've seen some of this and it is, it's, just extraordinary. This is ex- exceptional. So I've seen in sort of a letterpress fashion this being dimensionalized. Mm. Have you done the opposite where you've done the etching into something? Not yet. But, you know, I mean, yesterday when we were sort of on stage sharing images together, you know, with this audience in front of us and we were talking about dimensionality, it's like so frustrating because I wanted to sort of get into this notebook in front of me and sort of, and just make notes because the way that you did your journey of, you know, in, in, in terms of dimensionality of transposing one thing and then and then changing the scale and then discovering the possibilities and, of you know, and then Ephesus and all those extraordinary images made me feel like there was a huge amount more ahead of me in terms of working out whether the writing how this how this writing is going to emerge again what i do know is that there's something 
freeing about and playful, actually, about this process of writing into clay or onto clay rather than writing onto a page. So Lord knows, knows what this means. Well, that goes back to the eye, the hand, the connectivity with the material. Will you, for example, in the library of... Um, uh, refugees? What, what's exile. The, exile. Exile, excuse yeah. me. Um, it struck me that the writing is on the surface of this installation uh, on the walls. Mm. And um, I believe you put on porcelain slip first and, yeah. and then yeah. write. And so to me, there was a new level of accessibility, mm. of getting up to see the gestures and the calligraphic nature of your marks would you have you thought about whether or not your embossed work works or press works would be something that people could access? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I seriously don't know at this moment. I mean, you know, it's, it feels like all kinds of things are. So, talk a little bit about the conversations that you've had in your installation between your work and, and what is the architecture of the place or objects in the place. I mean, that's been happening now for a long time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's been really successful and sometimes it's been really tricky, you know. Um, and there have been times I've tried to do this in institutions which have been really complicated. Um, and there have been other times when it's felt very, very intuitive and easy to, 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 to make happen, to explore explore where things can be and how light can change and how the journeys through spaces and histories and buildings can happen. So it, that will continue, that whole putting things down, making work which is site-sensitive for different, for different museums or, or, or places in the world. And I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying that. But I'm, at the moment, I'm sort of we're pausing on that for a bit in order just to spend more time sort of in an experimental way in the studio just to see where that might go. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to music. Talk about some of your favourite composers and also is that part of your studio background all, all day long? Um, there is music on and off. There's all kinds of there's all kinds of music as well. There's 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 the same sort of sort of nodal thing about having having Bach and, and Mozart, Schubert and Haydn and people. One element which is sort of classical, which is which is my sort of class, love the love of deep, also particular kinds of classical music, particularly lots of stuff with voice actually as well. But then there's also Philip Glass and Steve Reich and and John Adams and um, American minimalism and um, which I love. So the you know the pulse and the rhythm and the drive forward and the repetition and all that of course is wonderful for me to make to that kind of music. So that's terrific. E even when you're writing, do you put on music when no, you're writing? No, no, that sort of doesn't work. So you, your books, your work have a deep spiritual thread. Is there some sense of bringing it back to the present, to the body, 
to the sacred space that is beneath your feet, our own being. I well, I think I yes. I mean, I, it's Simon Weil who is an amazing philosopher who says that you know attention is a kind of prayer, and you know I I, I do honestly think that there is something about slowing myself down or slowing other people down in terms of in in an artwork which is a kind of reconnecting attentive in terms of attention attentiveness to 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 the world which is a you know is is an act of in some way of this is a kind of spiritual discipline of some kind it can be thought of as a spiritual discipline or it can just be a way of slowing the world down for me it's somewhere between the two but there you are, you know, you're there in Venice, you know, with your twisted cup, which is history and storytelling and narrative and none of those things and anger and power and presence and beyond all those things, um, a way of being, making something beautiful, which has resonance. It does the famously perfect Stephen Greenblatt definition of an effective artwork in the world it has resonance and wonder resonance and wonder wonder makes you stop because it's so beautiful resonance takes you back again and again and again so i remember reading gulag archipelago by sultanitsen and i came across a review where he was asked why did you feel it necessary to name the names? It was just full of this litany of, of, of the prisoners or friends. Or he, he paid attention to the individual in, in s such a, a beautiful way. And I think about the possibilities for your library. Mm. And... What a gift that is to all those who participate and then having this out in the world and being transposed. The library's done has done the thing that we kind of hope for with work, which is that you know you you set it going and then it's no longer yours. Mm -hmm. So I'm really proud of the fact that we've made it happen in the world. And the fact that, you know, so many people have been in that library and written their names, found a book that they care about brought a book that they need to have in the library or written me a letter to suggest books that should be there and the numbers of workshops and things that have happened there. So I'm hugely proud of that. I'm hugely proud of it. And, and this is the strange thing, is is that it's no longer mine. Mm -hmm. It's it's passed over into, which I, I love. So, and that's part of the reason that it's not going on an endless tour. It's that it's that's you know, true. Is that it, end it up just, in Mosul. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Have you thought that maybe you are inviting people into a vitrine? I, I hope so. I have. And, um, you know, it's, yes, it's all good threshold stuff. It acts in a way that the spaces I made for the Royal Opera House, for the dancers, you move in, you pause, you come out, you see someone there, like with the dance piece. You know, you can you can be present just for a minute, or for a second, or you can be there for an hour, if particularly if you're writing in the books. Um, 
so yes, there's a there's a nice strong connection between these structures and the, the act, the, 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 the invitation and the act, act. Talk to me about color. It seems like your work has become more expansive and in, into the black, into the metallics. Mm. Yes. Color is color is happening, you know, not at a pace that anyone else will understand because <laughs> it's t- taken me uh, 30 years to move from celadon and to different whites and then into black. But the, the black glazes and the metallic glazes have been very significant for me because it's obviously all about shadows. It's about sort of mapping densities of shadows. It's, you know, I'm, I'm becoming cave, cave-like in some of those work. And I'm enjoying that enormously. It's I, just everything takes forever. But colour is hugely important for you. I have at times, again, reflecting a burstiness. Mm. Uh, I think early on that the rigour of silver and white and black was the framework yes. with that I worked within. White is is really important to, to my being and what I wear and, and shades and subtleties, nuances of white. This winter was so long and dark. It was a difficult time. And my color palette has just exploded into fluorescence. And that's helped bring me some personal joy, particularly the freedom and then the understanding of green and nature. Hmm. And we know that green is such a soothing and nourishing color. It's hard to paint and use, use green, but even by just painting and using the material, that there's a um, a focus that can come about. There's all sorts of uh, studies now that show, particularly from Mark Berman at the University of Chicago, that being in greenery, being in organic shapes as opposed to geometric shapes, can improve your attention and focus, even if it's just for 20 minutes a day. That's wonderful. I didn't know that. So... Um, I don't know, maybe I'll just default back to um, a more rigorous palette. But for right now, engagement in colour feels right. And finally, red. Talk to me about red. <laughs> Once again, a challenging colour. It's very raw in its connectivity. It's, it's a bit threatening. I love red. And maybe that created this alliance with a solo cup, this yes. red, this urgency. Also, I think about... Uh, the folds in a Caravaggio painting of of the robes and the echoing of, of those same folds, uh, just something that caught my attention. It's interesting you should pick up on that, the Caravaggio, because I, I, I was reading them as well as being having authority in the world, actually. And that's what I like about them is that they have, they have authority. The serendipity that came through this process of making, of crushing each one, then making mm. the molds and making them out of plaster. It spoke to me in a, in a different way. One, it had emotional weight. Suddenly it really was heavy and made it easier to project that this mm. was a person. And then the inside was more organic. We didn't finish it to the same degree. So that just comes about by being receptive and paying attention to what draws your attention and gathering all of those things and then trying to connect, trying to find a language, trying to tell a story, expand a conversation. How are we doing? That was a, that was a fantastic end. 
I think we should just record and say thank you, Paula. I've loved that. Edmund, thank you for this glorious um, indulgence in this conversation about art and being and understanding. And thank you for making my world bigger and our world bigger. And TBC. TBC. I've loved every minute of it. Thank you, Paula. Same. Edmund Duvall's The Library of Exile is at its last stop at the British Museum in London. You can actually check it out online on the British Museum's website. Thank you to my colleagues who made this episode possible. The Aspen Institute Arts Program, Paula Crown, Marcy Krivenin, Aaron Myers, and Christina Secconi. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow at Aspen Institute on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our work. If you liked this episode, give us a review. Thanks for listening.